This is Tim Bryan, pastor of Lifeway Apostolic Church, and this is our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. My prayer is that this message will inspire, build your faith, and draw you closer to Jesus Christ. Enjoy this message. Hallelujah. Let's give him a hand clap right now. Hallelujah. We're honored that you would take time out of your busy schedule to come to our little church and minister to us. We're so thankful and honored to have you here. We appreciate all that you do for the district and for these young people sitting here today. If you would come today and share what the Lord has given you to give to us, brother. God bless you. Come on, one more time. Can we just put our hands together for the King of Kings? The Bible says he inhabits the praises of his people. It also says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And I don't know about you, but I... I'm not too smart, but I can put two and two together, and if we worship him and he shows up, God only knows what could happen in the next few moments, and so certainly want to invite his presence in, and what an honor, and, and I say this to Brother and Sister Hornbeck and, and Brother and Sister Brian, it's my deep privilege to be here. I've been wanting to come to your church secretly for so long, and, and uh, I, don't, I don't say this, I, I, I promise you. You know, there's some things that you say because it's the right thing to say, and this, I, I mean it with all my heart. I have prayed for this church and have just had such an interest in it and have tried to text you through these past five years and have just been blown away. And I know you're a man of great humility, and this church has got such a tremendous spirit of humility and hunger for the Lord. But as I've seen updates and people being baptized on Facebook and just things like that, I, I was telling Sister Brian this morning, it, it, I, I was trying to act macho in front of my wife on the way here today but I was like trying not to tear up because I'm like where would these people be if it wasn't for somebody launching out by faith and planting this tremendous church in Avon Indiana it's just thank God for the church and for his precious people and I think you all are defying all of the statistics of church growth and everything. It's like God has surely got a plan for Avon, Indiana, and I'm just excited to be here today. I can't believe that I've got the privilege, and I thank you. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and read my one short verse, and then you're going to hear some of the most precious words in Pentecost, and I'll let you be seated uh, before I launch into the rest of my kind of remarks and, and get started. I'm going to turn to Luke chapter 1 and verse 37. And as you are turning there, I do want to give honor to your pastor and his wife and their kids and tremendous young people. And Evan's in the youth program now. And Ellie, she's paving the way. And and this tremendous, I mean, I was blown away by how fantastic worship was today. I didn't feel like it was student-led worship. It was like it could have been at General Conference or uh, NAYC. In fact, I I might try and pull some strings and get them up there because, man, it was just so, so tremendous. And. Of course, the Hornbecks and their leadership, and, and I uh, love Brother Graham wherever he's at, and uh, the Graham brothers are so fantastic and funny, and they're dear friends to us, and my wife is back here, and, and I want to talk about the impossible things of this world, and you're looking at her and looking at me and would big figure that it would be impossible for me to marry somebody so beautiful, but she must either have a problem with her vision or God has just been overly good to me. And my two wonderful boys back there, which you will probably hear them crying out in the middle of, they call me Pop, in the middle of Pop's preaching. Uh, it, is, it is a struggle. One time I remember we were up preaching around Chicago, and uh, Samson, my youngest Samson, he was crawling underneath the pews and made his way down to the altar. And I was just looking at my wife, you know, she's like, I don't know what to do, you know, just God, God's good. 
Luke chapter 1, verse 37, and you've surely read it. It's probably highlighted in your Bible, and it's a simple thought. I'm a simple man, and I'll preach a simple message to you, but I pray it'll help you today. And it says simply this, for with God, nothing, nothing shall be impossible. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Church said amen. You can be seated. Hallelujah. Amen. There are things that we have prescribed throughout humanity that would we have deemed throughout the centuries and millennia of our existence on this present earth to be impossible. There are things that have seemed too hard to overcome, things that seemed like they would defy the very physics of nature, that it would defy some type of code of being within reason, uh, many things that have seemed impossible, and, and, and you know, there's been actually, as in my tenure as youth president, I've heard stories of things that would happen at camp, and I know I've seen a couple of them with mine own eye, and, and uh, before I was youth president, I'll never forget uh, Brother Evan walking outside, uh, walking through the, the uh, campgrounds, and, and there was a little bit, you could tell something was shifting in the atmosphere and there was a little bit of like uh campers were peeking their heads out the door and and you know you could just tell something is amiss here i don't know what's going on and we began to investigate and walk through and then we couldn't find any of these staff golf carts and we got a little alarmed where are all the golf carts at somebody we've got a golf cart thief out here and we need to begin to call 911 and get old Barney Fife out here and just begin to really, we're going we're gonna to prosecute to the fullest extent of the law, which means we're going to make you pick up the trash in the middle of the day. And uh, come to find out, they had figured out how to uh, jimmy rig the golf carts and had driven them all throughout the back of the property around the residential cabins and such. And they figured out a way to winch the golf carts into the larger trees. And we walked through to see golf carts littering the campground around us as they were dangling 20, 30 feet in the air. And it was like one of those things where you're wanting to be mad at the campers, but you're so impressed and proud of them. It's like, I've got a responsibility to get onto you, but I'm kind of winking at them like, hey, <laughs> I don't know how you did it, but could you show me and share your notes? Because that was so epic. Uh, I don't know what to do with myself. And, you know, it would have seemed like that was impossible. How did they sneak out? How did they did it? There's, I, I didn't see this, but I've heard stories of them taking all of the furniture out of the tabernacle. I'm kind of regretting using this as an opening. I've used this in other districts, and now I've got Indiana campers that are like, hey, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, but I'm already knee-deep in it. And so I, I didn't see this, but somehow they got all the furniture out of the tabernacle and climbed on top of what, if you haven't been out to the campgrounds, the, uh, where we have our sanctuary is an airplane hangar, so it's half a circle. And they climbed to the top, and they recreated the platform on top of the, on top of the airplane hangar. I don't know how that's possible for them to climb up there. I don't want to know. I'm just thanking God that nobody lost their life that day. Uh, but again, it's one of those moments where you're like, hey, I want to give you a high five because that was genius. Uh, but a little bit more seriously, there have been things throughout humanity that people have tried to conquer and overcome, and they thought that it was impossible. The automobile was one of those such things. People thought that we were be cursed to be pulled behind horses uh, for the rest of our life, and with the advent of the first engine-powered bicycle, people still thought cars would be too expensive or they would move too fast and the organs of the human body would disintegrate or fail. In fact, rumor has it that even Henry, Henry Ford's passion uh, for developing cars and, and producing things began because he had been kicked by horses so many times that he said, there's got to be a better solution out there. I don't know if that's a fact or not, but I thought I'd include it anyways because I thought it was interesting. 
They thought that for many years that running a mile in less than four minutes, for centuries, people thought that running a mile in this less than four-minute mark was uh, a physical barrier that could never be broken. The toll that it would take on the human body was too sophisticated. They would have heart failure. Their, their lungs would melt. Their body would fail. I think we've just had a fear of going fast is what I begin to put together. But in the year of 1954, Sir Roger Bannister accomplished the impossible and ran the first sub-four-minute mile, paving the way for many after him to do the same. It was once deemed to be impossible, but then somebody launched out by faith and passion and, and accomplished that feat. But my favorite story of when we thought things were impossible was just the sheer amount of people who ascribed to the idea that aeronautical travel was an impossibility. That moving a vessel capable of carrying passengers at a horizontal trajectory while soaring in the air was against the law of physics. And their main argument was it would be impossible for something heavier than the air to fly. And gravity would do its best by doing its worst and sending something that attempted to defy the law of gravity, sending it plummeting back down to the ground below. However, in the year of 1903, Orville and Wilbur Wright accomplished the impossible and flew the first manned aircraft, shattering the human conception that doing so could never happen. But none of these feats, if you'll just, I know I'm not, I'm kind of straying away from the Bible, but I'm just trying to build a foundation here this morning. None of these feats happened by accident. The reputation of impossibility made proving them wrong quite difficult. It took sacrifice, discipline, passion, and even a touch of faith. And three years prior to the first moment that the Wright brothers launched out on their first manned flight, uh, Wilbur Wright wrote a letter to another engineer who he hoped would share his passion. And he said, for some years I've been inflicted with the belief that flight is possible with man. My disease, talking about his passion or obsession with developing aeronautical travel, my disease has increased in severity that I feel that it will soon cost me an increased amount of money, if not my life. To say that Wilbur Wright was passionate would be an understatement today because he was so engrossed in his desire to see this happen that he stated his life would be a worthy trade if it meant bringing this to pass. And this sounds similar to Paul's words to the letter of Hebrews when he says we are to present ourselves as a living sacrifice for the work of God's kingdom around us. I'm going to tell somebody today, some young person needs to hear this word, that there are some things that need to be done and accomplished in the kingdom of God. What has happened in the past five years is nothing short of miraculous in the city of Avon, Indiana, but it is just a starting point, and I believe that the very best has yet to come. But you might think for us to go beyond this point is impossible because you say, you don't know about the hallways that I walk through. You don't know what's going on in my school. You don't know what I endure on my family element, and that might be the case but I know your God, and he is a God who will do the impossible. There is nothing too hard for him. Impossible is not in his vocabulary. And if you're sitting here today with a burden growing in your heart and in your life or perhaps an affliction troubling you, I'm going to tell you that you could come here in the next few moments and see that which was never supposed to happen, happen. On the fateful day in December of 1903, the Bright, Bright brothers were dressed in coats and ties. Words were impossible over the engine's roar, so they merely shook hands, and Orville positioned himself on the flyer. Then, on a remote sandy beach, he broke our bond to earth. He flew. It only lasted for 12 seconds, and the distance of that first flight was less than the length of an airliner. But for the first time recorded in history, a man heavier-than-air machine left the ground by its own power, moved forward under control without losing speed. Something that was supposed to never happen happened. And within two short generations, aerospace travel is routine. We have broken the sound barrier, and we have even walked on the moon. I'm here to talk to you today that what you think 
it cannot happen. If you entrust it in the Lord's hands, it can happen. There's no drug addiction too complex. There's no family affliction too grotesque. There's no perversion that's too dark. There's no past that's too stained for God to be able to step into this service this morning with a simple message by a simple preacher and remind us today that that which you believe could never happen when entrusted to the Lord's hands today can not only become possible, but it will happen. It breaks my heart, the affliction that this generation of young people face. I've been in youth ministry for 15 years now, and I've studied it quite deeply, and I've given myself to, to wanting to understand the complexities of culture. Of course, it's hard for me to stay up with it because it shifts so quickly anymore. It's like we can't, we can't possibly with technology even be on the cutting edge of what's happening. It changes so quickly. And as soon as we feel like as youth pastors and parents, we've got a grasp of the complexity of what our young people face, it shifts radically on them. They are in a turmoil. They are in a cultural upheaval. And it's not just young people because it's gripping adults. It's gripping family units. Our country's never been more tattered and torn perhaps in, in recent history than I believe ever. In fact, I believe that the, where, the condition of our country right Right now is so fragmented it, it's it's troubling it's it's heartbreaking and and to think about the people that will come into these 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 uh, back doors here and will enter your assembly in the years to come to think of the things that they struggle with and to think of the things that even perhaps some of us under my voice here today struggle with it is troubling there's going to be people that will come into the church and struggle with the perception that their affliction is like an undefeatable giant and and hell's greatest champion is coming and expecting a breakthrough would be a waste of time because it's impossible to overcome the sets of trials we have in fact we had a special uh, youth service at our church on on friday night and it was an outreach service and and prior to service, I had a young man want to come and counsel with me, and he said, Brother Barbara, I I'm trying to do better, and I feel like I'm making progress, but but I, I just don't know that I'm ever going to overcome these barriers in my life, and, and I'm doing some bad things, and I said, I understand that, but you have to understand that for every step forward you take, hell is going to take notice, and it's going to do its absolute best to try to restrict you, and that friction that you feel is a positive thing, because for every step forward you take, the devil's going to try and mess you up. You see, the devil doesn't mind if you sit on your hands and sit on the front row and never contribute to the kingdom of God. It's when a young person begins to pray and fast and travail and give their life to God that hell will begin to hurl its darts at your very soul and intentions. It's then that you will feel the friction and the pressure of life and the burden becoming beginning to come upon you. But that's a good sign because hell takes notice that there's a young person in Avon, Indiana and the surrounding area that believes that the impossible can become possible and that there's no such thing as something that's so dark and twisted it can't be undone. In fact, I, I met a young man in Canada who was born and raised an atheist. His parents were wealthy, and they were professionals in the local uh, Canada uh, institution, and, and they were, they were uh, professors of higher education. And he had been born and raised with a scientific background, and, and he never believed that God was real. And, and so he began to date a young lady who uh, was given to certain areas of darkness. I'm trying to choose my words carefully here because this isn't a, a scare tactic story. It's just the reality of the world that we live in. And so this young man was at a party. He was in college. He was at a party with his girlfriend, and, and he didn't really know much about her. There was a relatively new relationship, and he's in one uh, side of the house, and he's on a couch, and he's in a drug-induced, almost a coma. He's in a, he's in a drunken, drunken high in a stupor, and he's not really aware of what's going on, but he can hear some chanting and some dark things going on in the room next to him, and when he goes to investigate, they're, they're beginning to go through some type of ceremony glorifying darkness, and, and so he began to question, even though he was high, he began to think, you know, I have been taught my entire life 
life, Sister Hornbeck. He said, I have been taught my entire life that the supernatural does not exist. But in that moment, I began to wonder, if they're beginning to worship darkness, maybe there is light out there someplace. He said, I've never, I, I've never prayed a prayer in my life. In fact, I didn't even know who to call Jesus. I didn't know what his name was. I didn't know what God's name was. He said, so I ran home. I ran out of that house. He said, my girlfriend stopped me when I hit the door and said, where do you think you're going? And he said, I'm going home. I'm not going to be a part of this darkness. And she said, we will cast a curse on you. He said, you do your worst. I'm going to find God. He went home and he buried his, his head in his pillow and he began to weep for the very first time. And he prayed a very simple prayer. You don't have to be Shakespeare to get a hold of God. All you've got to do is be willing. And he prayed a simple prayer and he said, God, if you know where I'm at and if it's true that you care about me, could you tell me how to be saved? At the very same time, there was a 14-year-old young person from a local apostolic church and he began to pray a prayer. He said, God, I want to be used in your kingdom. If you could tell me somebody who needs to be saved, would you send me to their door? He called mom and dad and he said, I feel a burden to go door knock. And they gave him permission and in the snowy Canada sky, he made his way out to the local neighborhood and he began to knock on door after door. Nobody answered. Some people would open the door and slam it in his face until 25, 30 doors later, he knocked on the door of the Canada Atheist College student and he opened up and he still has the remnants of a high, but he knew exactly what had happened. It was an answer to his prayer and he said, God has sent you to my house and the young man said, I have been praying that God would send me to teach somebody how to be saved and he said, that was my prayer just 30 minutes ago. How could this happen? And God filled that young man who never believed that God existed. It was impossible according to statistics with the baptism of the Holy Ghost because a 14 year old young person said impossible isn't a word in God's vocabulary. The problem with young people now is that we don't expect enough out of them. They ought to be up here on this platform leading in worship. They ought to be out teaching Bible studies. We enable them by, by teaching them that the world's too dark for them to have a meaningful impact. If a 14-year-old in Canada can pray a simple prayer and be sent to a door of somebody desperate for God, think about the hundreds of thousands of people outside of these four walls right now that are crying out in brokenness and despair saying, Somebody tell me about Jesus. The reality, I, I, I've given great study. I, I've, I've taught lessons. I've got journal entries. I've got uh, all kinds of statistics. I've read books. We've got libraries, I'm sure, Brother Bryant, filled with books articulating the complexity of the generation around us. This isn't a voice of prophecy. It's just a voice of just understanding what the world is coming to. It's, and the people that are going to come into these four walls and perhaps people that are under my voice today are beginning to believe that their situation is so complex they couldn't possibly overcome it. The depression they struggle with will always be a part of the li their life, so they believe. Do you understand that 30% of young people ages 12 to 25, 30% will have severe clinical depression by the time they make it through adolescence? 30% and the rate in the and the rate and trajectory of the statistic is rising. And now on Netflix, we've got shows dedicated to glorifying this horrific trend. And it's becoming a vogue, cool thing to do instead of being something that we should lament. When a, when a certain series, which I won't name its name, come out, I had psychologists calling me because they knew I was involved with youth work. I had superintendents writing me letters saying, you have got to be careful because young people are being taught how to harm themselves.
themselves because of depression. The people that are going to walk into these doors are going to believe that depression is such an integrated part of their life that they will never know what it is to feel joy in their heart anymore. There's going to be people that are going to walk in these doors that are going to have broken homes and feel like this will always be a source of pain and anguish. Or the addiction that has them bound interferes with their ability to function and be successful. Or maybe it's that you have a disease or a loved one has a disease that's destroying their health and has increased to a degree that doctors are saying unless they have a miracle you need to prepare yourself and say your goodbyes because it is impossible for them to recover or the pain of poverty has stricken a family the agony of betrayals wounds is festering creating an infection that we believe will never be able to heal or perhaps we have the ability to masquerade the anguish that accompanies us wherever we go because of the abuse that we have endured but I can assure you there are hundreds of thousands of people outside of these walls and perhaps some of us are within this auditorium today that feel the pain of some of these things mentioned or maybe it's a pain source outside of the things mentioned. But I'm going to tell you something that we have got to have a fresh revelation as Luke chapter 1 says, for with God nothing shall be impossible. I am such a slow learner. Just, it's just embarrassing. It took me over nine months to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And one of the old precious saints at Calvary came, and I'm sure they meant this kindly. I didn't know how to take it. And they said, man, you are a tough nut to crack. And I was like, well, praise God. I'm so glad I got the Holy Ghost because I'm able to hold in what I want to say right now. Uh, just a little joke. And, it, and I'm a slow learner, and I'm as embarrassed as I am to say that. And sometimes God has to work extra hard to get me to, to see and understand the way that he moves on particular situations. And I can't tell you how many times I've looked at circumstances and situations through a lens of skepticism, showing so, no signs of faith or, or belief that that which would be required to resolve particular situations fell within the realm of, of something that could be possibly achieved. I always thought it was impossible, and I can remember a call from an uncle regarding my cousin who lived a life of drug addiction and alcoholism, and he was being rushed to the hospital due to a diagnosis of leukemia. And his organs were shutting down, and they, he needed a miracle to survive. And the situation was grave, and I remember the doctor's conversations and the, the hospital facilitators having conversations with my uncle as I approached. And, and they, were, they were arranging for coroners and funeral personnel to come. Before my cousin had even passed from this present world, he was still alive. He was still breathing. He was still functioning to some degree, even if it was at 10% of capacity. There was still life in him, but the doctors had already prescribed that he was going to pass from this present world. My uncle was overwhelmed with grief, and he was pacing back and forth and could barely pay attention to them, and he was crying out to God because he had already lost two of his three children to drug abuse and heart failure, and he lamented the fact that his final child was now on his deathbed and had never received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and I'll never forget the words that haunt me to this day, and he said, Chris, it is unfair that I've had to bury all three of my children. I walked into a situation that had all but been settled. I hugged my uncle. I apologized to him for what was surely going to come to pass, but I'll never forget the look of a 92-year-old man who was a prayer warrior as he squared his shoulders and exclaimed to me that he did not call me there to have pity on him, but he called me to have a prayer of faith with him. I thought in the back of my mind, he has called the wrong guy because I have got 0% faith right now. I mean, I'm looking. I heard what the doctor said. I, 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 I understand that this is a complex situation, and it's highly unlikely that this is getting ready to turn around, but I followed my uncle as he barged between doctors and attending physicians working to sustain the life of a man hanging on by a mere thread, and we began to pray. I felt no Holy Ghost goosebumps that day. There was no lightning struck down from heaven. I just prayed a prayer and tried to be kind to my uncle, 
and, 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 and I, I was praying more for the comfort of my family rather than the miracle that was required. 24 hours passed and I received a call from my uncle and I, before I answered the phone, I prepared myself to be as compassionate as I could and I, I was trying to uh, rearrange the thoughts in my mind to be able to give him comfort as he lost his final child and, and the tone of his voice was totally different. He picked up the phone and rather than uh, a voice with a tone of pity and lamentation, he was filled with joy and, and overwhelmed with happiness and I said, well, can you give me an update? And he said, his organs are beginning to turn back on one by one. All of the things that were shutting down is somehow, I know the doctor said it wasn't possible, but he's beginning to, he's beginning to rally and we don't know what's going to happen and I'm not trying to get too hopeful, but I believe that God's going to do a miracle. And I said, Uncle Norm, I don't know how to explain that. I, I mean, I was there. I heard what the doctor's report was. They said it was impossible. I can't believe that this is getting ready to happen, revealing my lack of faith to him. And he said, I told you there's nothing too hard for God. And a few days later, he'd regained enough strength to be able to depart from that hospital. And a few weeks after that, he made his way to Calvary Tabernacle for the first time since he was a child. And God filled him with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, evidence of speaking in other tongues. And a man who was on his deathbed who had not known God and had only known a life of alcoholism, addiction, and abuse found his way up to the watery baptism chambers and was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and he never touched drugs. Oh, somebody needs to know that you can be a drug addict for 40 or 50 years, but one touch from God can undo that which has never happened. There's nothing too hard for our God. Come on, somebody needs to know whatever the complexity of your family situation is, there is a God who knows it all too well. And if you get a hold of him today, he will begin to move with compassion and love and mercy and grace and begin to restore some things that you never thought was going to be back, brought back to you. There's some people under our voice, there's some people outside in this world that are drug addicts, but they're looking for a way out. And there's no step program that's going to give it to them, and there's no other type of denominal religion that's going to be able to grant that to them but a touch from the master's hand. Years after Orville and Wilbur had successfully designed, produced, and flew an airplane, people still wrote scathing articles stating that the feat was impossible. In fact, a British nobleman, he was a professor and part of the British legislator, wrote four years after the first successful flight attempt that, as I quote, the aeroplane will never fly. Four years after the first time the Wright brothers took a plane up into the air and soared in even an ins just an insignificant distance. They had proved that this impossibility was in fact possible. Four years after the fact, there were still people who wrote that it will never happen. It's still impossible. You know why that is? It's because this person had never seen it happen. And there is something integrated within the realm of humanity that sometimes unless we see something occur, we cannot believe that it has actually happened. There's a disconnect when somebody says something. You know, you've all, we've all got those friends. They tell a story, and they've got the craziest stories, and before long, you begin to have a little skepti skeptical aspect to They tell you, and you're like, did that really happen the way they said that happened? Sometimes I tell stories. I've got a good friend of mine who keeps me humble, and, I, and sometimes when I'm preaching, he's Googling to fact check me like I'm a politician. Like, we need to have somebody making sure he's not lying to us up there. And, you know, and I'm like, okay. Well, you know, it could, because some of these stories seem so unreal, and he's like, I, I didn't see it happen, and, and I want to know, did it really actually happen? And, and so there's a part of us, and I'm sure you've heard the old adage that states simply this, that seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. 
And there's young people in this generation, and I've heard about it. I, I wasn't born and raised in church. I got in church at 18 years old, and I hear the stories that our elders tell about just this miraculous moving of God's spirit just marinating through services and almost like a cloud, just a Shekinah glory beginning to usher in and, and demons cast out of people and, and people filled with the Holy Ghost. And, and perhaps you've never seen somebody with blind eyes that was born blind and their eyes are open and the first time they can see sight and the shriek that accompanies it because they're so shocked to see the glory and the splendor of color and and imagery and people and they can see your face has happened to me when youth congress was in indianapolis and this young lady was given sight for the first time she'd never one time opened her eyes and seen anything but darkness but she could see the signs and of course if you're at youth congress it can almost put you in a stimulus overload with the videos and all the you know sometimes I, i've i've always had sight and sometimes it freaks me out so she's looking around and she's screaming i thought she was something was wrong with her and she began to reach out to my face and explain that that i can see and i said well if you can see you don't have to touch my face to figure out what i look like you can just you can just see and she was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, but perhaps you've never seen that happen, but I've seen that happen. And perhaps you've never seen somebody come and empty out their pockets and put drugs and, 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 and alcohol and cigarettes on an altar call before. And you've never seen that happen. And so you don't necessarily know that you believe that that can happen. But, but I can tell you I've seen it happen. But if we could somehow replace our skepticism with faith today, it would act as a bridge between the miracles reported in Scripture and our ability to believe they are real in spite of have never seen them happen yet. Because God is a God of impossibility and with him the things that we believe can never happen will happen which is why in Ele Hebrews 11 1 and 3 it says now faith is a substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen verse 3 says so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which do appear just because you've never seen it happen doesn't mean that it's impossible but if God declares that it's possible if he's a healer of our body if the word declares it he can heal the most complex disease today if he's a savior of our soul there's no complexity there's no dark sin that's too tragic to where it could define you the size of a mustard seed can remove mountains that have been ordained and rooted to this earth since the word was spoken in the Genesis account. If he can just speak it, and if faith the size of a mustard seed can uproot those mountains and move them to another place, how much more easy could God just begin to step into this place and erase depression? How much more likely could it be for somebody to be filled with the Holy Ghost before this service concludes? How much more feasible would it be for somebody to be healed? It's nothing for him to step into a moment of time and say, you know what, healing virtue is going to pour out upon your life. And that which you deem to be impossible is possible. The problem with us is that we have a mentality of the man at the pool of Bethesda. He had sat outside of that. He'd been lame, I think the Bible says, for 38 years. He'd been crippled in body. And he sat around this miraculous manifestation of God's glory. And he sat there and he saw time after time, as the Bible says, when the waters were troubled or began to stir, the first person to dip into that particular pond would be healed in that very moment and he sat there and he'd watch time after time as the waters began to turn around like a cyclone and it began to just stir up and, and somebody else would beat him down there because his situation was too great it was too hard for him to begin to maneuver and get down there fast enough and sometimes we've got the mentality that okay I, I really genuinely in my heart believe that God is a miracle worker but I just don't know that I believe that God will do a miracle for me but I'm going to tell somebody when the Holy Ghost shows up when God began to step next to him and he said hey would you like to be healed 
healed. He didn't even know who he was talking to. He said, I'd like to, but it's impossible for me because my situation is too great. And God said, I'm going to tell you something. I can mess you up real quick. I can turn your world upside down. There's no situation too big and bad to where you can't feel the glory of God just beginning to move upon your situation. I'm going to tell you something. You might say, it's for everybody else, but it's not for me. But I just wish that somebody would just begin to set a precedent in this place right now that says, I want God to just begin to walk these halls, walk these aisles, so that somebody, if it's not for me, if somebody else in this place needs a miracle in their body or in their life. Trying to hasten to a conclusion. I'm almost done. Matthew 8 and Luke chapter 7 records a, records a story of a centurion whose servant was sick. And you probably know the story well. And Jesus says, well, I'll go to your, to your house. I'll heal your servant because you've come to me and I want to come. I want to show you healing. And, and Jesus says, you know, or the centurion says, the, the leader of the captain of an army responds. And he says, you don't have to come. I understand authority. You can, you can just speak the words because you're a man of great authority. You can just speak the words and, and my servant will be healed. And, and Jesus' response to him isn't, okay, I'm going to heal your servant. But his response is, I haven't seen faith this great in all of Israel. And the man goes home and his servant has been healed because God responds to faith. The, the centurion hadn't seen the miraculous yet, but he just merely believed in Jesus' power. I'll tell you one final story. I met a man in, in uh, the Carolinas. His name was Joe, and, and he shared his testimony with me, and he gave me permission to share his testimony as we stand together. And, and I'll try and choose my words carefully here, but I want to give you an accurate depiction of what occurred in this situation. And Joe was several inches taller than me, and he was a big, just burly guy, construction worker. And... Uh, he was working on a Saturday, trying to get caught up on a job. He was doing some contract work, and he was driving his big, his big F-350, just this big, huge truck, and, and was driving, and he's going through the intersection, and there was a green light, but it was a Mack truck filled with construction product, and it was super heavy and several tons of weight, and he ran the red light, and it hit Joe from the side, and, and Joe, although he was 450-plus pounds, and he was a large man in stature, and just, he was just a big, large, strong man. He was hit with such force and velocity that he was thrown, as it was described to me, like a rag doll out of the windshield of his, of his big truck, and he's thrown there because of the, the glass shards. He laid there, and the first responders commentary to him was that it was like, it was almost like Humpty Dumpty, and I'm trying to be very careful here, but, but that which God designed to be on the inside of the human body was laying there on the asphalt. And apparently, EMTs have special tools at their disposal to when they come up to crashes and scenes like this, they, they have these things, and there's actually a shovel like an into a snow shovel, and the first young man who's about 25 years of age, and he was the first responder, and he began to, to, to literally take Joe and, and to put him back together again, just almost like Humpty Dumpty. I mean, I'm sorry, Brother Brian, but I'm just trying to, this was a crazy situation. He's scooping him up and just putting everything back on top and, and putting him on a gurney and then putting him in the ambulance. Now, legality, I don't know about in Indiana, but in the Carolinas, the, the legal code that they have to go through is they have to make sure to hook every person up, no matter no matter the condition, they have to hook them up to declare an official time of death. And, and Joe was laying there, torn into pieces, and, and they're hooking him up, and there's still just a little bit of heartbeat left. But the thing is about the mechanics of these machinery is sometimes they can become out of calibration, and so sometimes it's just the fault of the machine rather than the fact that there's hope in that particular circumstance. But by law, they have to then take them to the hospital, hook them up to different machinery so that they can declare an accurate and official time of death. While they're going through this, they, they pull uh, his information out, and they get his wife's contact information, and she calls, and she goes to a 
church in, in North Carolina that on every Saturday they have Saturday night prayer service and so she was already at prayer meeting with four or five hundred other people and they're praying and seeking God's face and she gets the call and the EMT medic says I hate to tell you this but your husband has been in a horrible car accident and he is in a condition beyond repair and you need to make arrangements and I, and I, I just want to tell you that this is this is not a good situation and he said but legally we have to keep him hooked up to life support because he showed just a little register of a heart a heartbeat on the monitor and he said it was so legally we we're required to go through these steps he said but i don't want to give you false hope and she said don't you dare give up on my husband i'm at a prayer meeting right now i'm gonna go tell my pastor and i'm gonna be right there but you do not give up on my husband because you do not know my god and so she went and told the pastor of the church began to pray and they had intercessory prayer for joe and they began to cry out to god saying god you've got to do a miracle she showed up in his uh, as you, I'm sure you can tell where I'm going with this. His organs began to recover and his heart began to become stronger. And the doctor pulled her into a private counseling room and he said, I cannot explain this. This should not have happened. He said, but I have a responsibility to be honest with you. He said, if your husband survives, it'll probably only be 48 hours. But if he goes beyond that, he will never leave this hospital. He will never be able to communicate. He will be a vegetable. And the husband that left you and kissed you when he departed your house this morning will never be the husband that returns to you. And she said, all due respect, and I appreciate your, your professional opinion, and I appreciate the help and care that you're going to give my husband, but you do not know my God, and he is the great physician. And so she called her pastor, and she began to pray, and the church began to pray, and they had regular fasting and prayer, and, and days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months. Not only did Joe make a full recovery, but the number one Bible study giver and soul winner in that church is Joe. He's involved in the choir. He's on the youth team. He's involved with everything. He survived because God took something that everybody else, by the numbers, by man's understanding, it was impossible. And that which was never supposed to happen, happened. But here's the cool part of the story. Joe has a red handkerchief, and Joe stands in the same corner of the choir loft, and I've seen Joe worship. He's still as big as ever. Just, just, he's just huge, just wonderful, kind, gentle man. And he gets this red handkerchief out, and he worships in the corner of the choir loft. Well, the, the young man who, who, who scooped Joe up and put him back together again is still working at the hospital. And somebody walked by and said, you remember that horrible car accident that you saw about a year ago? He said, I'll never forget that. He said, did you know that that man recovered? He said, no, he didn't. He was dead on the scene. He said, no, he recovered. In fact, he goes to a church about five miles up the road. He said, that's impossible. That's impossible. And this young man at 25 years of age was an atheist. He said, that's impossible. God doesn't extend. I, I mean, that, there's no way that that could happen. He said, listen, I don't know what to tell you. We know it's true. You can go on any Sunday. They've got morning worship, evening worship. You can go. You can go see it for yourself. And he said, I'm going to. So he grabbed his girlfriend one Sunday night when they were off work, and they went to the local church, and they sat in the corner. They didn't want to be greeted, and they didn't want to be touched or bothered, and they sat there, and he's, he's squinting. He's almost got his binoculars out. He's trying to really be skeptical about it, like, it ain't going to happen. Ain't Joe ain't here. I saw it myself. I scooped it back up. It's Humpty Dumpty story. I mean, it's, it's I mean, my God, there's no way that could happen. But then he's, something catches his eye, and he sees a red handkerchief just going around and he sees this man jumping up and down in the choir loft and he sees this man make his way down into an altar and begin to dance and shout because Joe has said God has given me a second chance of life and there's not going to be an opportunity that I have to worship him that I don't give him my best and that young man that came in at 25 years of age an atheist as soon as the altar call was started he made his way down to an altar of repentance and God filled him with the baptism of the Holy Ghost not only that, but he looked at his girlfriend. He didn't know much about her background, but she was a backslidden Pentecostal who carried wounds and betrayal and hurt and sorrow. She made her way down as soon as she saw her atheist boyfriend filled with the Holy Ghost. God filled a backslider with the Holy Ghost. I'm going to tell this church one more time. I don't know what God's got in store for Avon, Indiana, but I know that it's going to be nothing short of 
for listening to today's message. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. If you would like to know more information about our church, please check us out on Facebook at Lifeway Apostolic Church. May God richly bless you.